seeing this uh, small crowd reminded me of a story. You probably heard it before, but it was a story about a pastor who showed up to his church on Sunday morning, and the whole congregation was gone except one man sitting down there. And he went to him and he said, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I've never had it like this before where everybody's been gone except one person. I don't know, what should I do? And the guy said, well, I don't know. I don't know much about preaching. I'm a farmer. But I do know that if I go out to feed the cows and only one cow shows up, I still feed the cows. So the pastor goes, well, fine. And he goes up into the pulpit and he preaches and he preaches and he goes on and on and on and preaches and finally gets done. And of course, at the end, when he's shaking hands with the congregation, it's only the one man there. And he said, well, what did you think? And he said, well... I'm a farmer and I don't really know much about preaching, but I do know that if I go out to feed the cows and, I, and only one cow shows up, I still feed them, but I don't give them the whole load. <laughs> uh, so today, I don't know, we'll, we'll see if you get the whole load or not. I'll see if I can talk fast. I, uh, I listened to a guy speak at IBM once years ago, and he said, he said going into it, he said, I'm going to talk really fast because they say that you can hear twice as fast as people can speak. And so I've got a lot to say, and I'm going to talk really fast. So maybe I should talk really fast today, Adam, instead of just really loud as usual. Okay, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians still, and probably will be for a time. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. Uh, Last Sunday, we arrived at the basic cause of the divisions in the Corinthian church. And um, I would say that basically the, uh, it was carnality. We have a church full of carnal Christians. Uh, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, some of, well, I almost have it memorized. I did have it memorized at one time, but I better read it just to make sure I don't mess it up. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what the Corinthians were not doing. The Corinthians were, if we could put it in the uh, very crass way, they were just doing what comes naturally. And, uh, you know, that's easy thing to do. If we just let our flesh go and just do what comes naturally, we'll be, we'll be carnal. And we talked about how the divisions in the church were real outward evidence of their carnality. And, and Paul started addressing them. We talked about the, you know, he started asking the questions, who are Paul and Apollos? Or really, what are they? What difference does it make? Who gives the message? The important thing is that the, me the message that's, that's, the important thing is not who's speaking, but the important thing is that God is using them. And so that was what we talked about last week. And then we talked about the, uh, it being important not, that there's a danger sometimes, even today, of uh, exalting the servant of God and sort of forgetting about the master of the servant. And that's not what we ever want to happen. And then he got into a discussion of building on the foundation of Christ and talking about how our works, uh, the works that every man have that don't get us to heaven, but it's that actually will gain us reward in heaven whether our works are gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And the wood, hay, and stubble kinds of works can be things that look good on the outside, but they, they really are nothing to God. They're not important things to God. And so we have to be careful that, we, that the works that we're doing 
are really the ones that are important to God. Sometimes those works that mount to a small lump of gold are not really noticeable in the church. Maybe you might not see them as much as you might see something else, a nice big wooden structure that really means nothing to God. That We have to be careful that we are doing those things that are the important things to the Lord. And so we talked about that, and uh, I was encouraging us all, including myself, to examine our hearts and where we were in our place of carnality. Are we carnal Christians, and are the works that we're doing ones that are gaining us great rewards in heaven? It's okay to work for rewards in heaven. That's a good thing. And now when we get down to verse 16 in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And we'll just go to the end of the artificial chapter boundary uh, today. And Paul is going to start addressing some of the solutions to the division problem. And it's kind of interesting, uh, the solutions. But let's read first verses 16. Well, let's just read 16 and 17 and talk about them for a minute. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, we may want to read this particular, these particular verses here to say that he is saying, you know, individually that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's saying here. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't say that elsewhere, because in 1 Corinthians 6.19, just a couple of pages over, that's where he says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy, Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Um, so he definitely teaches that individually our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But that's not what he's saying here. Here, based on the context of where he is, and uh, he's talking about the temple being the church. The word temple here is a Greek word, Naos, and it's used figuratively here for the church as a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. And again, it's, it's the context that he's speaking about here that points to the fact that as he's talking to the church. It literally means a shrine or a sanctuary. And here it means the sanctuary, uh, at, well, the word temple, that this actual literal translation means the the, the uh, sanctuary and the temple that only the priests could lawfully enter. Here it's used, well, use the word metaphorically, it's used symbolically to stand for the church as the mystical body of Christ. Uh, similar verses to these, companion verses, I guess you could call them, are in Ephesians chapter 2. We've read these uh, a couple of times. Ephesians 2.19 where it says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So it's again, it's, clear verses that teach that the church of God itself is a temple or a sanctuary where the Holy Spirit dwells. Uh, we have looked at those verses in Ephesians. We read them before as uh, when we looked, when we first started and we talked about Paul and claiming that he was an apostle. We looked to those verses to indicate that uh, 
the apostles were there were the, there were a set of apostles that that were designated by God back in that time and that there aren't any more so that there are people out there today claiming to be modern day apostles but I believe the scripture teaches that there were a set number of apostles and they laid the foundation of the church and then the church was built upon that foundation Jesus Christ being the cornerstone well that was the we looked at that at kind of with that focus before we read it with the idea that uh, the church itself is a temple or a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It's not just individually, but the church. Well, I was raised as uh, uh, going to the Catholic Church, and I remember uh, years later when I grew up and uh, I'd left for a long time, and then eventually got saved. And, came back and started going, attending an evangelical church in, in Rochester. And one of the things that I noticed, the difference in, in how the people treated the church building that we were in, when it, the Catholic church used to kind of walk into the church building and there was sort of this sense of, you, didn't, you sort of walked in and as soon as you walked in, everybody quieted down and you kind of walked carefully and and then we got to this evangelical church, and kids are running up and down the altar. I mean, this is after the service, not during the service. People are running up and down the altar and talking, and, and, and it's like there was no respect at all for the, for, the, for the building. And I remember thinking at the time, well, I, I kind of miss that, that sort of that awe and respect for that people had when they walked into the building. And yet, the more I think about that, you know, the more I think, while I'm not condoning, disrespect for the building that we use that the church uses uh, you know I don't I don't think it's a good thing for people to be running and jumping on chairs and ruining things I don't think that's a good thing at all I've changed my view a little bit I think uh, what we really ought to have awe and respect for is the church of God and the church of God is not the building the building is just a thing that we use to help facilitate our worship and uh, and whether we walk into the building and feel this sense of awe I think that may go along with kind of the, the sort of the mysticism that that, belong, that was in that church. I'm not sure. And you've probably heard this before, but the translated church or assembly in the in the uh, New Testament word ecclesia, and it comes from prefix ek meaning out of and klesis meaning a calling and so you've heard people refer to the church as a group of called out ones we have been called out of the world and it stands for the whole company of the redeemed throughout the present era the company of which Christ our Lord said I will build my church and so when he talks here about the, again we've talked about the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it being the church. And we, we need to have an awe and respect for the church, meaning our fellow believers. Not just the believers that attend Hiawatha Bible Chapel, but these are the believers in Jesus Christ who are the church. So it, it's interesting, as we look here, if you look at these verses in the context of Paul trying to address the problem having in terms of divisions in the church, he is simply saying, I guess if I could put it simply, that the Corinthians need to realize how important the church is. I mean, that's easy to say, but you know, once again, when, when you start getting together with the church, you find out that there are other people, <laughs> and you know, that's the, sometimes the problem with 
world is the other people, you know. It's, I'm always fine and doing things right, but the other people, you know. And so, uh, so it's an important, well, the, he's basically saying this is one of the things that we have to really get deep down in our spirits if we're going to take care of the problems that are in the church. If we look at, at our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, which we should, and we'll get to those verses later on, then uh, this should lead us to take care of ourselves. Um, I've changed my view here. I used to, you know, if you read a lot of the modern literature, they'll say, you know, you got to eat healthy and you got to exercise so that you can live longer. Now, I, I believe it's important that we take care of our bodies, that we eat healthy, that we exercise, that we do all those things. But I think the purpose is not so that we can live longer. I think the purpose is that we honor God because our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost. So it's the, it may be the same thing that we're supposed to do, but it's for a different purpose. And, and then now if we look at the church and say, now if the church is the Holy Ghost, then we, we need to look at, well, okay, how do we treat the church? How much respect do we have for the church, for our fellow believers? And it isn't just because we're supposed to or, or whatever. It's, it's really because Really, I mean, God, God dwells here. The Holy Spirit dwells here among believers, and that's a very important thing. Well, how important is the church? Well, let's look at verse 17. It says, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Um, let's see. It's interesting, but in verse 17, the words that are translated defile... And destroy is really the exact same Greek word, uh, fitero or something like that. It means to destroy, to corrupt, to be corrupted, to be led astray. Uh, Vine's dictionary says this word signifies to destroy by means of corrupting and so bringing into a worse state. Now think about this in terms of the church. He's talking about if any man defile the temple of the Holy Ghost, or the temple of God, which is the church, um, so, to destroy by means of corrupting and so bringing into a worse state. With the significance of destroying, it is used of marring a local church by leading it away from that condition of holiness of life and purity of doctrine in which it should abide. And then it also speaks when it talks about him God shall destroy, uh, about God's retribution or punishment on the offender who is guilty of doing that. Um, now, there are Places in the scripture, and you don't have to turn there, but Second Peter, uh, if you want, you can. Second Peter chapter two uh, is is a place where it talks about false teachers. I mean, it, it's it's a fairly long uh, verse that talks about some of the some of the false teachers that come into the church, and and some of the evil that they do. And uh, I won't I won't read it all here, but it's it's an interesting set of um, of verses, and so it certainly can talk about false teachers that come into the church and lead the church astray with false doctrine, and it it goes on and on and talks about some of the things that they do. And in, in verse eighteen, they speak great swelling words of vanity, and they allure through the lusts of the flesh through much wantonness those that were clean escape from them who live in error. So there is definitely thing that comes into the church, and that is, is something that 
uh, talking about here. And so I, I think there's certainly reference to that here. I mean, um, in talking about those trying to defile the temple of God, it has called, you know, talked about as being those teachers that come in. Um, and this is from Matthew Henry. He said, false teachers among the Corinthians that were not only loose livers, but they taught licentious doctrines. And what was particularly fitted to the tastes of this lewd city, and he talked about and, and uh, leading the church astray in that way. And saying that the teaching tended to corrupt, to pollute, and destroy the church, building God. In the word building here, symbolic way of believers being set aside, consecrated to God. And it's all. And so these verses also have been referred to as enemies of God's truth, those who try to destroy his church and seek to ruin the work of the Lord, men from outside who creep in, claim to be servants of Christ, but despise the Bible and every fundamental truth, but for the sake of money they preach the gospel. Now that's certainly in the world today. There are people standing in pulpits all over the world preaching for the sake of money. They preach a false doctrine trying to lead people astray. And I think that that's certainly a reference here. I think I couldn't help but think, well, why would he be talking specifically about that here when he is, uh, we started out in 1 Corinthians talking about the problems in the church and these divisions that were there and having to deal with them and then, and then had some verses in between talking about, um, you know, God's wisdom and how much higher it is than man's wisdom and, and letting it, you know, uh, not trying to be a great swelling speak great swelling words, but let God's word speak for itself. And then talking about the three types of people, the carnal, all of those things, and then coming back to the divisions. And then right in the middle of that, he starts talking about people that defile the temple of God. It, it, he has to be referring back to the people that are causing divisions in the church. And I... It popped into my mind. I remembered uh, the verse. I had to look up and find out where it was, but it's in Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to turn there. It's Proverbs 6.16. Some interesting verses that were written by Solomon that I think apply here. Proverbs 6.16. Okay. It says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Now I'm relying on somebody else's academic expertise here, but I was told one time that when the literary technique is in the scripture is used where it says, now these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. That is a technique that is used to draw attention to the last one. Not that the first six are not important, but it's kind of drawing more attention to the last one. Well, what's the last one on the list? He who sows, sows discord among brethren. And so I think he's talking very clearly here about defiling the temple can be those who sow strife and division among the church body. Now, I'm certainly not saying that you know every time you have a dis disagreement with someone in the church or even have an argument that you're sowing discord, I'm talking about uh, uh, 
deep and continuous strife and division, not being able to reconcile. I mean, we're all people here. We know that we're not perfect. We know we all don't think the same. And that's probably a good thing, unless you were to all, of course. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and so there's going to be problems, and there will be times when we have strife among one another, but the body of Christ is supposed to deal with that strife and come together. And if you can't agree on something, then you have to be able to agree to disagree. Um, in, a, in a small assembly like this, you have elders who are appointed as shepherds over the body to take, you know, sort of be the ultimate authority within our body here. There is some strife or division that were to happen. Ultimately, they would decide how things are going to be if something becomes a real kind of issue. And, and they're there to make the decision ultimately. And, and if you were a person that had, you know, disagreed vehemently with that, then, you know, it might be, you know, God might be calling you to maybe perhaps go fellowship somewhere else or, you know, I don't know. But uh, but there is a way for the assembly to take care of itself and the church in general to take care of itself. And so I think that he is talking here about this division and saying that uh, this continuous and deep strife and division in the church can be defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we think about how important the temple was in the Old Testament and how, you know, if you weren't a priest, you didn't go in there. I mean, it was it was quite an awesome thing. It was treated with a, a, an awe and respect. And if we in the New Testament time can can have a similar kind of awe and respect for the, uh, the church of God, our fellow believers who make up the church of God. He says that the temple is holy. And I, so I looked up the word holy thinking, well, everybody knows what holy means. Anyway, and I thought it was interesting. It comes from the same root as um, the Greek word hagnos. This is the word hagios. It, it means fundamentally signifies separated. Among the Greeks, it was something that was dedicated to the gods. That, that's what it meant among the Greeks. So therefore, in Scripture, um, in its moral and spiritual significance, separated from sin, consecrated to God. Being a saint of God is not something, it's not something that you attain, something that you work for and attain. Being a saint or a believer or be redeemed is a state into which called by the grace of God. And then the scripture, you know, you read various parts in the scripture, it says, therefore, because of this grace that God has given, therefore, you should sanctify yourselves and live lives that are worthy of the calling. Places like 2 Timothy 1.9, Ephesians 4.1, uh, cleanse ourselves from all defilement, forsake sin, and live in a holy manner of life. The things that we're called to do because we are saints, because we are believers. And then it says, so, and the saints are then, therefore, figuratively spoken of as a holy temple. And, you, and you'll have to think about it again in terms of how holy the temple was in the Old Testament. We are to view the New Testament church as a holy temple. Um, and then uh, a quote from a G.B. Stevens. I don't know who he is, but it was out of Hastings Bible Dictionary. He said, it is evident that this word hagios and its similar words express something more and higher than the word hieros, which meant sacred or outwardly associated with God, and something more than the word semnos, which means worthy and honorable, and something even more than hagnos, which means pure and free from defilement. He said it is means characteristic God-likeness. So this 
word holy that says the temple is holy is like the highest of these list of words that are kind of used to signify sacred or set apart. It's kind of the, the highest one indicating a very God-likeness. Um, and, and so he speaks about this temple of the Holy Ghost, this church being holy. And defiling it is something that uh, it calls down God's destruction on those who do it. That's a very serious matter. God shall, will destroy, it says. Him God shall destroy. Now, it may not happen exactly when we think it should happen, but it is the Scripture, so it says it's true. Um, now, if we look into verse 18, another... Um, so, I guess I said all those a understanding and having an awe and respect for the temple of the Holy Spirit, i.e. the church, our fellow believers. If we have a true respect in that way, we will... Uh, Avoid strife and division and avoid defiling the temple. It goes on in verse 18, it says, No man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. Christ is God's. Um, he says in verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise. That word seemeth translates to mean somebody who thinks themselves to be wise. It doesn't just mean if if you look at somebody and say, boy, that's a really wise person. This is somebody who thinks they are wise. They consider themselves to be very wise. He said, if anyone is of the opinion that they're wise, uh, then uh, in the world, it says it does say wise, in this world, uh, those are the people that need to become fools in order to become truly wise. Uh, a couple of comments that I thought were put really well about those type of people. It says, when we have too high an opinion of human wisdom and arts, plain and pure Christianity will be likely to be despised by those who can suit their doctrines to the corrupt taste of their, of their hearers and set them off with fine language or support them with a show of deep and strong reasoning. But he who seems to be wise must become a fool that he may be wise. He must be sensible of his own ignorance and lament it. He must distrust his own understanding and not lean on it. Uh, to have a high opinion of our wisdom is but to flatter ourselves, and self-flattery is the very step to self-deceit. Um, notice it said at the beginning of 18, let no man deceive himself. Jerry, you mentioned earlier about sin being deceitful. That is exactly the truth. Um, we, can, we can be puffed up in our own wisdom and think that we're wise. Um, it's, it, we have to have a low opinion of our own wisdom. And so I guess I would say in our, uh, to put it simply again, the first point of trying to solve the problems of division in the church was just having an understanding of how important the church is, the basic temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second one would be having a, a proper understanding of our own wisdom is, is key. Now we've talked about some of these verse, very similar verses in chapter 1, so a little bit more to say here. Um, 
Uh-huh. Uh, let's see, where was I? <laughs> uh, think of it. We're comparing, if, if we, tend to, we tend to think we get too high in our own wisdom, we, we are comparing our own finite mind with the infinite God. Now, if we think about it that way, that should keep us... Because there's no way we can compare with the infinite God. And it's, it's very silly to think that worldly wisdom um, is so smart. And again, in verse 19, and we read in chapter 1, the, the, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's eyes. Um, here, another comment about that. Um, it, it talks about God. Um, at the end of 19, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. He says here, he catches them in their own nets and entangles them in their own snares. He turns their most studies and plausible and promising schemes against themselves and ruins them by their own contriving. I, I know I used this example before, but I just think it is a very good, perfect example of this type of thing. Uh, when I think it was in the 1700s, I'm doing this from memory, but it was the French Academy of Sciences. Remember I mentioned, I don't know, a couple months ago. They came out with a statement saying that the Bible is not true. And they came up with 10 things that they said were wrong, that were false in the Bible, and they had proof, proof for why they were wrong. And they proved them by science, that those 10 things. And over the course of time, all 10 of those things, it was proved that French Academy of Sciences was wrong, and science itself proved that they were wrong. So what they were teaching as the truth in 1760 or whatever it was, as time progressed, science itself proved that they were wrong. And they were using that to say the Bible was wrong. I, I think that's just a perfect example of man's wisdom being exalted to the point and God just showing how foolish it is. Um, I remember also hearing a, a quote about a guy who was a, a Harvard biologist. You're supposed to go, ooh, Harvard biologist. I'm impressed. Um, he, he was a uh, talking about evolution, and he was talking about, I, I, I'm not a scientist, but there's like the second principle, they call it the uncertainty principle or something like that. It's, uh, it basically says that things left to themselves tend to deteriorate. They tend to go from a state of higher, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, higher complexity to lower complexity when left to themselves. And science accepts this as, as a premise in science because they've observed it. And, and he even talked about that, but he said, but if you leave things long enough, I mean, that's, he was talking about evolution and how millions and millions of years, but if you leave things long enough, to me that's like saying, you know, I buy knives for a dollar and I sell them for 95 cents. I lose a nickel on every knife, but if I can make it up in volume, if I just... If I just do enough of them, I'll make it up. This is a Harvard biologist. Ooh, you got to say, ooh. This is the kind of wisdom that man has. Um, you know, there are people out there, and, and you may have even think this is true, that man is getting smarter and smarter as the years go by. Uh, that is absolutely not the truth. I, I told you I was reading this book called Mathematics is God Silent, and... Uh, here, here is a list of some of the inventions that were invented back 
hundreds of years before Christ in, the, in Alexandria, they had pumps to bring up water from wells and cisterns, pulleys, wedges, tackles, systems of gears, and a mileage measuring device no different from what may be found in the modern automobile. These were things were used commonly. Steam power was employed to drive a vehicle along the city streets in the annual religious parade. Water or air heated by fire in secret vessels of temple altars was used to make statues move. The, the awestruck audience observed gods who raised their hands to bless the worshipers, gods shedding tears and statues pouring out libations. Water power operated a musical organ and made figures on a fountain move automatically while compressed air was used to operate a gun. New mechanical instruments, including an improved sundial, were invented to refine astronomical measurements. And there were people in those days that actually used some measure, astronomical measurements to determine the circumference of the Earth. And they were extremely accurate. They, they figured out how the distance around the Earth. And this is back hundreds of years before Christ. The only reason I bring that up is to say, man, there's no hope in man. We are not getting any smarter now than we were thousands of years ago. All we have now on our side is more time, more time and more information and more inventions. That's all there is. That makes us appear to be smarter. But uh, man is clearly not the answer. I, I knew you knew that. It says in verse 21, Therefore let no man glory, let no man glory in men. And then he goes on to say, for all things are yours. All things have been given to us, including ministers, ministers of the gospel. Talks about Paul and Apollos and Peter. Um, ministers are given to the church, and it's a very useful thing. Uh, by God's grace, they are to teach the word. But the very gift that comes from God can, some, can lead to problems, and it certainly did here. Now all of a sudden, um, instead of taking the ministers for what they had to offer, taking, you know, Paul founded the church, Apollos came along later to strengthen the church. Instead of just taking them for what God had intended them for and using them for what he wanted them to use them for, it led to strife in the church. And I think that, uh, I think this is just one of those, God's plan to keep us humble. Gives, and we can even, we're supposed to just whatever ministers are in the church and, and use them for uh, to, to lead, to teach, whatever. But there can be problems. Um, it certainly led to problems here where they started having little factions where they were following individual teachers instead of following the truth. And, and one thing also I've noticed that it can happen is if, if we start to rely too much on ministers to do our teaching for us, we get away from learning the scripture ourselves, and every one of us is supposed to be in studying the scripture. So my point is, we have a gift from God, we should use it for what it's intended for. Um, he says, um, all things are yours, or the world, everything in, you know, everything in the world has been given to us. Um, I'm not getting into the prosperity gospel here, I'm saying that God, God has promised to provide all our needs, all the things that we need in the world. He specifically mentions life. He's given us life. We're here on this earth. What is our purpose to be here on this earth? To honor God and to prepare for heaven. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then he gives us death. Death is how we get to heaven. So here we have life to prepare for heaven. Death is how we get to heaven. And he says, all things are yours. 
But then he says, you have to remember in verse 23, but you belong to Christ. This reminds me of, and I think I've said it here, I know um, when I spoke to some young people out at uh, Ironwood Spring, Sue and I went out, Josh had a camp out there this summer, and I told him, now listen very carefully carefully to me, but I believe it's true that we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do what you want. And I've said that here before too. If you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's a given, then you can do what you want. Same thing here. Everything is given to us and for us to use, but remember that you belong to Christ. So it's all subject to us belonging to Christ. He is the Lord over us. Give Him the dominion over our lives, to cheerfully submit to His commands and yield to His good pleasure. But other than that, everything's given to us to use as we, as we please subject to the belonging to Christ. And so, I think, again, let me just summarize to say, I think two simple things that we have to realize to try to take care of the strife and the division and the problems in the churches. First of all, just to remember how important the church of God is. It's not the building, it's the people. And we, it says in the word that God dwells in the church. The Holy Spirit dwells. Um, it's, it, I guess I'm, I'm saying it's not even everything the church does that it's, that's important because sometimes the church gets off and does things maybe God would not want us to do, but it's the, all the believers together make up the church. That's, that's a very important thing. And it says that we must not defile or corrupt the church. We need to pray for and work for and cherish fellow believers. I think that's the first point. And then we, have, we need to have an appropriate view of our own wisdom. Uh, we have to know God and know Him and submit to His wisdom <clears throat> because the wisdom of man will get you nowhere. And this is one of those things, I tell you, it's really easy to sit in church on Sunday morning and say, yep, I know that's true. But then you just, then you leave here and you go out and we very careful. Remember what I said at the beginning? I think the Corinthians were just doing what comes naturally. That, that is the easiest thing for us to do is just sort of let our flesh do what comes naturally. And if we do that, we're going to get into the carnality. We're going to get into the, uh, worldly wisdom because it just seems so natural. I guess that's what natural means. And so the important thing is we got to know him and, and know the word. And it's funny how just about every, uh, it seems like, you know, ho- hopefully, we're understanding what the Scripture is teaching us, but it seems like we arrive at this point all the time when we're trying to discussing among the church. It's important to know God. It's important to know His Word and then be obedient and follow it. It seems like everything leads us there. So that's an, uh, I get there again today. It's an important thing. Uh, let's close in prayer.